HVAC 360, episode number 19. My interview with David Underwood. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of HVAC 360. I'm your host, Matt Nelson. This week, I have the pleasure of sitting down and talking with a friend of mine, David Underwood. Uh, he's Canadian, so don't hold that against him. Um, I appreciate him, and this is actually uh, my first uh, international Skype call. So thank you, David, for being uh, another first for me. Um, this week, uh, we get to talk and, and learn a little bit about uh, David's background. Um, David's a professional engineer. Um, he's been a, a, an owner uh, of his own company, and uh, he's uh, really involved in ASHRAE uh, currently. So uh, one nice thing that uh, you'll, uh, a little bonus bit of information, you'll learn all about square tires. So if you ever wondered what that is and what I'm talking about, let's go to the tape. All right, this week we're talking with David Underwood, who is a professional engineer. He is a resident of Canada, A. Eh? And uh, how are you doing this morning, David? Very well, indeed. Thank you. <laughs> so w I guess one of the things that I, I want to learn is, is everybody has their different kind of uh, process, shall we say, in Canada, process to, to becoming an engineer. What, what kind of what – wanted what made you want to become a professional engineer? Well, uh, it wasn't originally the idea that I wanted to be a professional engineer, but it goes a long way back in my history. Uh, when I was a child, and I was raised in the middle of Saskatchewan, which is uh, north of North Dakota, and they were building a main highway across the country at the time. And the little town I lived in, uh, they were building a bridge across a creek. And one summer, when I was in grade 7, I sat there fascinated for the whole summer watching them build this bridge. And there was a professional engineer who, or, who was actually in charge of the project, and I t spoke a lot to that person, and that identified a career that I thought I'd like to pursue. And the interesting thing for me is I did pursue that career, and I became a civil engineer, which is you know sort of related to building bridges, and thought that would be uh, sort of the direction of my career. But you know it, it shifted as I left university and I ended up working for, uh, for train. And after I worked for them, I became a mechanical engineer and the rest is history. I've remained in that discipline ever since. So was there ever any doubt uh, that you wanted to become an engineer at, at that point at grade seven? Was that pretty much locked in or did you kind of say, you know what, if I wasn't going to do this, I'd, I'd do something else. I really don't think I ever had any great ambitions to other to do anything else other than I I've always had an interest in medieval history. Okay, fair enough. Um, now, I guess where did you get most of your uh, your education for engineering? Uh, my engineering education was at the University of Manitoba. Okay. Now, what were your what do you have any favorite uh, you know subjects or classes that you took? Well, the interesting thing is my, my, my favorite classes were direct engineering classes. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed economics, and the other one that I actually really, really enjoyed was astronomy. Okay. That was, that was an, elective an interesting elective course. I've never had that. Uh, well, in, in, in the University of Manitoba, you know, when I was there way back then, 
There were no electives. You took everything. Oh, really? Astronomy was part of the engineering corps? Yes, it was. As, as was economics. Well, I can understand astronomy. I, I think as a now. Now, how did they? Well, really... because, because of because of being in a civil engineering program, astronomy is pretty important in terms of of of, uh, of identifying locations and that sort of thing. So you need to have some some idea how to actually do navigation. Okay, so it was tied to navigation and that uh, interesting. It's, essentially, that's correct. <laughs> All right, so it was a very it was a very heavy math course. Now, any any interesting engineering engineering schools tend to be, you know, they tend to have these weird weird stories that, that occasionally, you know, whether it be like Caltech, MIT, those sort of things. Is it was there any any sort of interesting stories that you had from your your college days that you'd care to share? Uh, that probably could... more of the, of the social nature than, than of the engineering <laughs> nature. Uh, there were certainly some of them. Uh, but, you know, the, the engineering school at the University of Manitoba, its, its primary focus, interestingly, because it was in the prairies, was agriculture. And, and, you know, they have a very, very good agriculture school there. And, and there was a, you know, a, a, a form of agricultural engineering that uh, was tied into their, uh, into their agricultural programs. And those, that was, that was probably the most identifiable thing out of the University of Manitoba. At that time, uh, Waterloo in, in Ontario was recognized as part of the best engineering school in the country because they had actually started the program of, of, uh, of, of having students go out and work in, the, you know, work in the marketplace, which was something unheard of at that time. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you took advantage of? or No, we never had that program going at the University of Manitoba. Oh, okay. Now, I did, I, you know, my summer jobs were all engineering related, so I did have some, some exposure, but it wasn't like uh, doing a work term. Yeah. Now, uh, I guess engineering jobs as a as a young engineer. What what kind of things did you kind of um, you know uh, knowledge and insight or any aha moments that you you gained uh, while working as a as a young engineer? Anything? Well, I, I had a couple of things that sort of directed me to where I ended up going. I uh, my summer jobs were always with uh, you know, with government institutions. I worked for the federal government of Canada for three summers, and I worked for uh, Manitoba Hydro, which is you know a government-owned entity in Manitoba in my in my final year. And uh, the concern I had was that you know looking at what uh, you know your career development within any of those organizations. There was a very long period of time, and a lot of there was a lot of politics, and there were a lot of things that uh, that would direct you to a uh, you know a, a future career that were really related not necessarily to your talent, but to your ability to uh, to be there for a long period of time. And I was, as a young man, I was certainly very I was somewhat aggressive and interested in in. in uh, in, in, in you know having my career go forward based upon my abilities, and I had a friend that uh, went to work for Train. He was a couple years older than me, and he was doing very well, making lots of money, and uh, and getting a, rewarded for his efforts. And that really appealed to me, and that's why I got into this business in the first place. Excellent. So now, having having gone through this process of you know kind of you know learning engineering, getting through uh, and uh, establishing a career, what kind of recommendations might you have for people who are are, are trying to uh, trying to get into the engineering field? Um, you know, as far as learning and or trying to you know 
break into uh, you know some ground level entry level positions? Well, you know, the first thing uh, is, is probably to to make sure you do as well as you can in school. I mean, it it, uh, it if, if you come out with a reasonably uh, you know good grade point average, uh, you've got a degree that has credibility, and and that that is that is a a very important thing in terms of of, of getting an initial interview. Uh, beyond that, you have to have confidence in yourself and your abilities to do something. But you don't should not express overconfidence because if you do, that often turns off you know a uh, a prospective employer. Um, just be yourself and, and 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 present yourself and the skills that you have available and 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 your interest and willingness to learn because you you know an engineering degree is like an apprenticeship program. It it is an it, you once once you've been through it you have the credentials to learn for the rest of your life. Now, are there any sort of, uh, I know that there, there, there's schools in the United States that have uh, uh, engineering, you know, based programs or kind of like a, they, sometimes they're referred to arch- as architectural engineering programs or they're more HVAC oriented. Um, are there any that you know of in Canada that, uh, is that, is that something that, uh, um, is more commonplace is is you know than the United States. It's well, I, I, our system is slightly different than the U.S. We have we have uh, you know universities and we have colleges. Our colleges are not degree granting institutions in the same uh, in the in the same uh, effect as a university is. But they they run a lot of programs. You know, particularly you know HVAC and R. That's where it's taught. If if you have a university degree in mechanical engineering in this country, you essentially might have had some exposure to HVACNR, but it's rare. And so if you really want to get exposure, you should be actually looking at a college education, which will not give you an engineering degree. Mm-hmm. Now, what, so that's our differential. Okay. Now, as far as uh, – so you worked for TRAIN for a number of years, and then, and then is, is that when you started your own company? Uh, well, I left train after almost 10 years, and I worked for a mid-sized design-build contractor. Uh, with the, uh, you know, when I went to work with them, the uh, idea was I was going to be able to uh, get some equity participation, which really again appealed to me. And uh, like most things of that nature, it was not going to come to pass. So I spent my last six months figuring out how I was going to start my own business before I left them. And then I started my own business in 1975. So uh, how did that go? How did that, how did that turn about? Uh, well, I try to. I'm 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 somewhat of an honest person. I think. Uh, you know, I guess I, I shade the edges like everybody does if it's absolutely essential. But when I left that company, it was my decision not to walk away and take any of their clients. So I actually started my business with absolutely no customers. And I spent a lot of time on the phone talking to my contacts and people that I knew outside of my contacts from, from the, the employment I had with the, with the former uh, contractor. So it took me quite a while to establish it. It took uh, almost three years before we actually turned our first profit. Wow. Excellent. Um, now, I guess um, some of the things that you, you obviously had a lot of experience with design build, um, 
you know, I, I guess, what, what do you think is the, uh, the, the trend nowadays uh, with design build? Is it, is it growing? Is it shrinking? Well, from my observation, it certainly is growing. I, I, uh, it, you know, my design build experience is, is not of the nature of what's happening these days with, with P3 projects and that sort of thing. I was always small, and I intended to keep it that way because I liked hands-on. I liked to do what I did. I liked to be involved in the design. I liked to be involved in the construction, and I liked to be involved in the commissioning where I turned the, the product over to the owner and taught their personnel how to operate it you know, to its, its best effect you know, on behalf of the owner for what he was looking for and his project requirements to begin with. Uh, I think some of that gets lost when you get into larger projects and you have a lot of, again, you're going back to having all the disciplines involved. You'll have an architect, you'll have a mechanical engineer, you'll have an electrical engineer, you'll have a structural engineer. And, and, and oftentimes, integrated design gets lost in that, in that mix. And so I think the bigger design build projects tend to have some problems that, that, uh, you know, that are similar to the, you know, the, the traditional uh, design bid, uh, build uh, you know, method. So I'm not, I'm not 100% confident that, that, that large design-build projects you know, have a great deal more success than the old traditional way of doing, the, you know, doing a construction uh, uh, project. Okay. Now, you mentioned uh, P3. What, what is that? P3. Well, that's, that, that's, that, that's really sort of the government's way of, of, of putting a project off the balance sheet. Like, uh, you know, somebody will design... And I forgot what all the P stand for, but but you know it, it's private and, and and there's private funding comes in, and then the the private funder, well, they don't own the project, they operate the project for a certain period of time, and at the end of which they turn it back over to the government. So the government gets an asset that they never actually had on their books. Okay, so it's more of a and and, that, and that's, that's more like hospitals and and and. And you know schools and that sort of thing. So performance. And universities, universities are involved in that too, quite a bit. More, more performance contracting, you'd say. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, is, as far as the the design build projects that you're you were dealing with, you, you were mostly dealing with. Uh, uh, was it was it smaller? Was it uh, you know like additions or you know remodels or, or things like that that were in existing facilities? <laughs> There was some of that. Uh, there was a lot of stuff where we were involved on the industrial side where you know somebody would have a particular project they were working on that required some, some unusual control system or some unusual refrigeration systems or whatever, and we'd try and design a solution to the problem they were trying to solve. Okay. So we were, we were working within the confines of something that was already existing in most cases. Now, the benefits of design build, you know, do you think it's this, the, the benefits that you saw uh, doing, you know, the, the more kind of uh, uh, internal projects, uh, do you think that, that the, benefits, the same benefits of having the, you know, the engineer, you know, look over the construction, look over the commissioning of it, or actually do the commissioning of it, do you think that benefit kind of, you know, does it extend to the larger design build projects or... or uh, to some extent, and a, a lot of design build is a lot like commissioning, in my opinion, and 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 that's the integrity of the people that are actually doing that particular kind of work. And if if you're only in it to make money, uh, you know, I think it'll fail. If you're in it because you believe in in, in, in giving appropriate solutions, not just one off. It's you know, looking at good, better, best ways of doing things for your client. 
and, and, and spending the time at the upfront design part of the work so that you can give the options to the owner and the owner can select you know, from from you know, from a range of things that may you know do the the project for him in in a good, better, or best manner. So I, I you know I think some of that gets lost as you get bigger and bigger. Okay. So I guess what what are some uh, obviously uh, since you have a lot of experience, what's some of, some of the tips to doing design build right? Uh, the tips, in my in my opinion, is that you need to have lots of contact with owners, and 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 you know there are many ways of doing that. Uh, you know, it's 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 being involved in your community, being involved with 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 clubs and organizations, where your credentials you can you can talk about them, and and people who have problems, if you sit down and have discussions, you can then maybe you know say, well, look, maybe I can help you in this area. And it's, it, it's, it's, that, it's that networking. And the networking actually within ASHRAE helps that sort of thing a lot as well because you learn, you meet people. And, and I have often actually done some design build work for consulting engineers. So what, um, I guess, what you have any other lessons learned? That you, I mean, what are some of the examples of, of things that have gone wrong that you've learned from the past not to do again? Well, uh, I guess the lessons gone wrong is 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 being overly enthusiastic about how you know how well you can do a project and 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 underbidding what the, what is probably necessary in order to to uh, to make the job profitable. But I never backed away from a job if I if I was losing money I completed it anyway whether I lost money or not. And I had several of those over my career. <laughs> That's a valuable lesson. Now, I guess what is what is your you know as as long as I've known you, what is what is your fascination with refrigerant? What how is that relationship uh, with between you and refrigerant? Well, maybe I uh, maybe I smelled too much of it as a kid. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, what I liked about it is that you know my my company uh, until I started bringing in partners, which was you know sort of seventeen or eighteen years after I started the business. Uh, the people who worked for, for my company, uh, you know, were all refrigeration mechanics and, and, and they were, you know, in Ontario, they're, they go through a 9,000 hour apprenticeship. They're all very talented people. And I like to work with them and I was out in the field with them and I enjoyed a lot changing compressor, changing component parts. Uh, doing some piping and 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 all the things involved, where there, there's a fair amount of technology involved in piping systems and refrigeration systems, which are don't apply when you get into other you know other fluids. Uh, it, they're, they're, as, as as fluids and and machines, there's a lot more complication there is than there is between pumps and chillers, in my opinion. Now, what are some of the common things that go wrong with refrigeration systems? Uh, uh, the common things that go wrong with refrigeration systems is is uh, is, is oversizing pipes, so you don't get you don't get appropriate uh, you know oil flow back to your compressor, and, and if that happens, you've got big trouble. Okay. And the other thing, the other thing that is a big problem is a lot of people want to use hot gas bypass, and in my opinion, that's 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 a mugs game from two points of view. Number one. It's an energy hog, and number two, you can often overheat your compressors, and and, and again, that leads to a lot of failure. So you, you're not a big believer in, in hot gas bypass? Absolutely not. All right. 
um, you know, I, I, I have to I have to ask from a refrigerant standpoint, you being in Canada, is the low ambient options that uh, we would find down here in the States, are they uh, like more of like a requirement? Like nobody asks, you know, whether or not they want low ambient, they automatically get it. Is that? Well, in, in where I live in Toronto, not so much, but if you live in Winnipeg, it's automatic. I, I I know this from experience. In in, in my uh, I uh, used to own a car, a uh, Dodge Omni, and uh, yeah. it um, there was there was actually it was it 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 had no air conditioning, but it had a block heater because it was from Minnesota. But if you bought the same car down in Texas, you'd get air conditioning automatically, but there wouldn't be a block Absolutely. heater. So, in in Winnipeg, what you got when I went to university, everybody used to line up at the uh, you know when you registered, and it was a long, long lineup so that you could get a, uh, a a parking spot with a post that had a plug in, so you could, so you could start your car in the middle of the winter. That 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 is amazing because you know I I know that you know just you know growing up in northern Minnesota, it was. Uh, you know, leaving your car running and taking your keys with you, you know, you can't do that nowadays, but people would do that. Just let their cars run because, well, they went into the grocery store or something, you know, they, they just let, it, let, them, let the engine run and, you know, so it wouldn't cool down. Yeah, Matt, one of the things you may not have experienced, but you probably did in northern Minnesota, have you ever had square tires? I have not had square tires, thankfully. I've had them many times, and that's I, I and, and just just for the the people who have no idea what I'm talking about, that's that's in the winter when it gets so cold that your tires actually freeze, and when you start to drive, you know you've got the bottom of your tire is flat, and it goes thump 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 until there's enough heat built up in the tire for them to get round again. It's, am- it's amazing. <laughs> it's quite it's quite an experience because it's quite noisy, quite loud, and quite uncomfortable. Oh. So you you now pretty much you you're retired now from uh from from business life and and you've you've kind of thrown yourself into ashray. Um what are some of the what's what I I guess what are some of the uh, things that you're involved with uh with ashray? Well, right now I I'm I'm uh fortunate enough to be a vice president and 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 that is a nominated position, and it, is, it expresses a lot of confidence from the membership, and for that I'm very, very grateful, and I'm very honored. And it's a, it's a huge honor. It's not just, it's not just uh, you know, that, that you, you've been there for a long time. You, you, are, you are very much honored to, to be able to have these positions. Uh, and and with, that, with that comes a, you know, a great deal of responsibility on behalf of the membership, for, of which I'm very much aware. Um, in my other sort of you know situation as a VP, I'm also in char- I'm also right now the chair of the Publishing and Education Council, which is the you know the part of Ashery that uh, that develops and, and and produces the handbook and the journal and 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 all our professional development courses and those things, which I think are a great deal of benefit for all of our society members. Oh, absolutely. Now let, let me ask you a question. I and. I, you know, I'll put you on the spot since I know you're on you're on publications. Then, um, but the, the handbooks. I know that there has been some op- opinion. If if you're an engineer, if you looked at the ASHRAE handbooks, they're not. I mean, they're they're a great resource of information. They're very definitive. They're they're put together by industry experts, but they're not easily digestible by somebody who may not know as much as the person who wrote it. 
is is that how is that uh, being handled in society? I mean, is there is there a push towards you know making the handbooks a little bit more user friendly, or is that going to be supplemented by you know other you know uh, I guess other courses to to kind of say okay, well, you know if you really want the technical explanation of of, of heat loss, you go to this chapter. But if you want to kind of learn a more hands on approach, you take a course. Or how is that that being handled in, in ASHRAE society? Well, I would say there's probably a mixed bag of that because all all chapters. I mean, there's there's kind of a uh, it's like the publishing industry. We have we have a committee that's uh, part of the Publishing Education Council that's responsible for the publishing of the handbook, and then you have all the TCs who are the authors, and they're they're responsible for the actual content. And and in those interactions between the handbook committee and the TCs, you know, they're kind of looking at editorializing it so it's readable and it's understandable as best it can be for the you know from some of the complex technology. Mm-hmm. I would say that there's probably somewhat of a mixed bag on on on, on putting things in, into a more uh, easily read form. But one of the things that, that's often been pushed is things like rules of thumb. And and I have a friend of mine who sat on Handbook for 12 years, and he's got a very interesting concept about rules of thumb. That's R-O-T, you know what that spells. So that's the difficulty in trying to get down to simplifying things, you know, for the for the for the designer or the engineer who has not got much technical knowledge in this particular area. Is if you get down to doing rules of thumb. You know, are you really giving something that's credible for a technology, you know, a society that's involved in technology? That's who we are. If you want more information, one of the things and where you really have to go in the handbooks is you have to go to the bibliography, and and, and in there, you know, there's there are references, there's a lot, and, and the reference materials that are used, and that's where you can read if you really want to delve into a subject. That's where you have to go, and the handbooks are there to tell you how to get to those those areas. You know what? That's I, I've never uh, I've never thought about that uh, that portion of it. But you're right. There are those bibliographies in in back there, and uh, they 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 are a very important aspect of the handbook. That a lot of people don't even think about. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those. So now I've been enlightened. Thank you. You're quite welcome. <laughs> so now you you are a ASHRAE fellow. Um, That's correct. How how does one get that designation? That that seems pretty. You know, I don't know. Well. Again, that's an honorific. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of limitations. I think mean, first of all, you have to be a member for a minimum of ten years, which I I, I qualify that for that quite easily. Um, and it's really looking at your career in engineering. It's not specifically tied to HVACNR. It's it's tied to what you've done. And in my case, you know, I've been, in, you know, uh, I'm a bit of a gadfly, and I've been involved in a lot of things. And you know, from from writing, you know, you know, writing a, you know, a safety manual for the refrigeration trade in Ontario, to to lobbying with the Ontario government over refrigerant management, uh, you know, and, and ozone depletion and those sorts of things, to my work at ASHRAE, to some of the design build work I've done. So it it really is a com- you know a compendium of all those things. And it is reviewed by the Honors and Awards Committee, and, and in actual fact, to become a fellow, it eventually goes before the board. The board of directors have to approve every person whose name comes comes forward, you know, from the Honors and Awards Committee, to actually be awarded the fellow in ASHRAE. Wow! Well, congratulations on that. 
Uh, well, so, thank you again. <laughs> so, you you had written a a uh, uh, a manual on safety for refrigerant. Yeah, in combination with other people, it wasn't wasn't me alone, but okay. it was you know I was I was involved with it. Okay, so I, I I have to ask you what what are some of the safety tips if you're going to be dealing with refrigerant just off the top of your head? Oh, off the top of my head, I mean it's you know it's it's making sure that uh, you know if you're going into a you know a a contaminated uh, chiller room that you've got a proper you know you've got proper uh, breathing apparatus on. It's making sure that you don't, uh, you know, you, you don't expose yourself to refrigerants uh, on your skin surfaces because they will very quickly freeze you. Um, it's 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 all the other things about you know, about safety, climbing ladders, uh, you know, where you work, um, and and it's 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 a lot to do with construction safety because that is it's a construction type you know type uh, trade. And it's you know there's all those things about you know uh, making sure that you have guardrails and and etc. So people don't fall and hurt themselves. And because that's in in, in Ontario the single biggest uh, injury in the construction industry is falls. Hmm. Be safe. And, and and we cited a lot of statistics when we were developing this program. Wow. Now I know that uh, with a, with a trans was this uh, you know during that transition from like you know R twenty two phasing that out going to four ten A or you know four seven C the kind of the different refrigerants that actually operate at higher pressures is that I mean I I I think that there will be a lot of safety concerns relative to that. Well, let me let me let me straighten that part of it out. When I wrote this book, that was before we got into the Montreal Protocol. <laughs> it was that long ago. Okay. All right, yeah, but it's, but but that, that that book is still is still in, in in print. It has been updated, but it's still in print. Yeah, I mean that you know I I'll agree with you. You know, I mean as as far as things go, engineering wise, uh, you know, uh, refrigerant and you know refrigerant design is something that is is not for the uh, you know faint of heart. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting well, to note that. Uh, yeah, I, I you know yeah, that that may be a little bit of a a, uh, a strong statement. I find it very interesting. It's challenging and okay. it's and it's interesting because you know, like if you are an engineer and you truly like engineering, you like challenges. And 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 in you know again something else that I've always felt about engineering, it's it's a matter. A lot of people think about it as being a very precise science, which it isn't. It is a look at the best information you can get for, uh, you know, uh, trying to to apply uh, some engineering principles or scientific principles to solving a problem, and it ends up being risk management because you don't always have the information you need. Okay. Yeah, and I, w- I would I would totally agree with you. But my my statement about refrigerant, just so I can clarify that, you know, I, I when you talk about R11, R22, it's well documented. That's nice and fun. When I took a look at like, you know, 410A and 407C and some of these other refrigerants, I don't I don't know if they've they've gone to the same uh, depth of explaining. Okay, what are the properties? What kind of pipe do you need? What are the charts that you need to to review? I think you know it almost seems like you know way back when they kind of published that information, but now it's kind of you know I've seen a lot of cases, well, especially with variable Matt, refrigerant. I I can explain that to some degree. Part of what has happened 
is that under what is called the SNAP program in the U.S., which is a rapid, you know, so the rapid development of these refrigerants, you know, as a result of Montreal Protocol, they came on the market and before people had time to do the research to do proper design for those, you know, those new products and those new foods and their flows, etc. And so what has happened is that they've looked at the tables and data that have been used before and tried to adjust them. So they may not necessarily be exactly accurate at this point. So, and that, I think, can lead to other problems when you're into, you know, into, into piping systems. Although it appears that more and more systems are actually being packaged and, 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 and piping has, has not, is not used as extensively as it used to be, from what I can observe. Right, and especially with the variable refrigerant piping, I think that's probably the biggest right. area where, but that's all all based on computer models that uh, that you get from uh, software which, used by yeah, the factory. Yeah, which you have to have because it's you know it's it, it, it's 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 dynamic as opposed to the other systems which were, you know, well, there's a dynamic flow. It was really static in nature. Okay. All right. Well, David, I appreciate your uh, your time. Is there is there any other parting remarks that uh, uh, you'd like to uh, to tell tell anybody? Well, I just first of all I'd like to thank you very much, Matt. I've worked with you before, and I've always found it interesting. I think you're a very talented young man, and thank you very much for doing the work you do. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, uh, I think the, that uh, that pretty much does it. So uh, thank you, David, and uh, good luck in uh, in in your uh, ASHRAE endeavors. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, we're back. I want to thank again David Underwood. There's a lot of thanking going on in this episode. But thanks, David, uh, for taking the time uh, to talk with us uh, about his career uh, throughout engineering. Uh, you know, he has a lot of good things that he has uh, um, you know that he can add to the situation, and uh, I think you know, frankly, you know, I've I've talked about it before, but networking, you know, comes up again and again. Uh, it's important uh, if you want to be uh, an engineer. Um, you really don't you really don't sit in a cubicle and, and and be a good engineer. You get out there, you meet people, you learn about you know who the contractors are, who the who the rep, you know representatives are. Uh, you really get to. Uh, it's a very kind of social thing uh, that that this you know, professional engineering has become because that's the way you become your best. Uh, also, another interesting tidbit that that I learned, thank you, David, is the uh, bibliographies. I never uh, I'd never kind of thought about that. I've always done that with papers. It seems that if I want to find out exactly, okay, where did this paper get this information, so I could kind of do some deep diving on a subject, I'd always look at the bibliography of of, of an article that I'm reading or a paper. Um, but I've never thought about the ASHRAE handbooks like that. So I will have to take a new look at the big bibliographies of the ASHRAE handbooks. So. Uh, again, kudos for David for pointing that out. And uh, there again, I think that uh, if you like this episode, uh, let me know. Uh, you can reach me at matt at buildingx.co. And uh, if you uh, follow me on Twitter, I'm at buildingx. And also, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So if you want to get a hold of me, give me any suggestions, feedbacks, it always would be greatly appreciated. I appreciate it, each and every one of my listeners. And thank you for listening. Uh, and remember, know what you build and share what you know. 